It's always been like that since Dave and I were here together. He organizes my life, and uh, I eat his cookies. <laughs> Dave used to go home on weekends, and his mum felt really sorry for him because, you know, it's very hard for him to gain weight. And so she'd send back all these goodies for him, and I was very thankful for that. <clears throat> Today we want to talk about hope. Very appropriate of, in my life because uh, when I first came to faith, when I first realized the forgiveness of my sins at 14 years of age, this totally characterized what that moment was like. Hope. Uh, I, I didn't realize up until that day that forgiveness was possible. Uh, I, it was increasingly realizing I needed a lot of it, but I didn't know where to get it from. And I was sitting in a small brethren chapel in Sarnia, Ontario, and the speaker was a missionary named Bert Campus, and he was talking about the forgiveness of sins, and it just all of a sudden became clear uh, that I, even me, I could have my sins forgiven. And uh, that was in between hockey games that I went off to play between this talk. So it was a tremendous uh, start to my new life of faith. And um, so hope, the way we're going to talk about it today, is different than how it's used in society. This is not hoping you're going to win the lottery, which is basically Dave's retirement plan. It's not hoping that you'll pass your next exam even though you didn't study. Uh, and for some of you guys, it's not hoping that some pretty girl will talk to you someday. It's a different kind of hope altogether. And so today we're going to talk about it and we're also going to think about it in terms of insurmountable opposition, insurmountable difficulties in your life. Because that's when hope that comes from God is, is shown to be quite different than hope that's in the world. When you face an insurmountable obstacle and are able to move forward. Christian hope is quite different. It doesn't mean maybe, it's a certainty. It's a guaranteed certainty. Okay? It's also a noun and a verb. As a verb, it means to confidently expect or to anticipate. When you're anticipating your birthday, you know your birthday's coming. With it, or you're going to die first. Okay? Those are basically your two options. Okay? You can anticipate your next birthday. Now, you can't always anticipate any presents. All right? But you can make up for that if your roommate has a mother who sends cookies all the time <laughs> and you can eat them all and console yourself that you didn't get any presents. So to confidently expect. But it's also a noun. And you know, a noun is a person, place, and thing. And from the scriptures that we've read and many others in the Bible that talk about hope, uh, we know that the person of hope is Jesus. Jesus Christ. There's no one else like him in all the world. There's no one else like him in the history of mankind. And there's no one else but Jesus who's going to fulfill the hope of your life. It's also a place. Hope is talked about in scripture, the hope to come. And that is the place of heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new body. It's a start of a whole new existence for those who have put their hope in the person of Christ. And it's also a thing. It's your salvation. It's your regeneration. It's your redemption. It's your forgiveness, as I found it, uh, the day that I finally understood faith and understood what I needed in my life. So it's a noun, it's a person, place, and thing. Hope is real. It has substance. 
when it comes from a Christian point of view. And hope changes everything. When hope came into my life, it completely altered the course of history for me in the course of the future to come. It also changed the course of history for my entire family. A few years later, my brother came to Christ, then my father, then my sisters, then one of my sister's husbands, and then two years ago, finally, after praying for 22 years, my other brother-in-law came to Christ. And that has completely revolutionized the family history. If you've ever done a family tree, you wonder what those people were like. Well, when it gets to you, you can change it. You can, you can create a whole new future if you put your hope and trust in Christ. And that's how it was for me. It changed everything. First of all, it changed who I was. Instead of being an earthbound person, I became a pilgrim. This missionary who was speaking, Bert Campus, he was talking about how they had just uh, got their first ship in OM, Operation Mobilization. Astounding miracles. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never heard of people who attempted to do things with no money which is basically what it means to be a missionary <laughs> or a Bible school uh, or Christian university professor. How to do things with no money. To have your reliance on God and not on yourself. When I received the forgiveness of sins, I also received the whole world. I could go anywhere and God would be with me. I could go anywhere and not lose him. I couldn't shake him with a plane. I couldn't shake him with a boat. Boy, that sounds like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, that's my other favorite theologian. But. but it makes you a pilgrim. It makes you a person who belongs somewhere else. So if you take that seriously, you start to live differently. And I'm going to tell you that most of you here are not living that way. You don't live as a pilgrim. You're thoroughly stuck in this life. And as a result, there's a, just a ton of discouragements. Everything seems difficult. Your teachers are unreasonable, and your roommate has bad breath, because <laughs> you are living in this life, and so do I. I get caught in it all the time, but I am a pilgrim. I'm on my way to somewhere else, and so everything has changed. It also changes what you value then. You value heavenly things. You have treasure in heaven. Some people say you can be so heavenly-minded you're no, no earthly good. There's really no such thing. If you are truly heavenly minded, you are of the ultimate good here. You are the kind of person everybody wants to be around. You are the kind of person who is sought after, who is loved, and for whom the whole world weeps when you die. So become a heavenly minded person. That's what gets you through an earthly life, anticipating and knowing that your hope is somewhere else. It also changes then what you do with your life. In that passage from 1 Peter, it talks about living a holy life. Not living like you used to, but living a holy life because you have this hope. And it turns you into a person of love, not only for those who like you back, and not only for those in your age group, and not only for those who smell okay, okay but it turns you into a source of love for people who you never anticipated God might bring across your path. And it's a very, very glorious thing. So what does a, a life of hope look like? There's a book called Good to Great, and one of the very first ideas in going from a good company to a great company is to look the brutal facts of reality in the face. All right? So when we're talking about hope, we're not talking about ignoring trouble, ignoring life. 
I work with IJM. I wear this subtle T-shirt to remind people to seek justice. The people that we work with and for are enslaved. Sometimes up to three generations, they've been slaves, working with no ability to direct their own life. Their children are born into it, and their grandchildren are born into it. Okay, it's a horrific, brutal life. We also work with people who are、um, tricked into becoming prostitutes in brothels, young girls starting at the age of five, who will serve anywhere from 15 to 20 customers a day until they die of AIDS. Until they grow up and are no more use, okay. So the world is brutal, and I'm in it up to my eyeballs every day. But hope changes all that. Hope, hope changes how you feel and how you deal with those things. So you face the brutal facts of reality and you move forward anyway because you have a strong and confident expectation that the promises of God are completely true. They are completely true, and will be carried out without fail. That's how you face the brutal facts of reality. So a life that is full of hope looks like this. It looks like this window. It's a life that advertises: "Come in and be inspired. Come in and see my life. You're going to be inspired. What God has done. Right? This just happened to be a furniture store in Chicago." But I thought, man, that should that should be an advertisement on every church. Should be an advertisement for this school. Come in and be inspired. A life of hope inspires people, and I want to just share a few stories of some people that have inspired me along the way. I'm going to share some from Zambia. How many of you have been to Zambia? Is there anybody still here, Dave, who went to Zambia with you? One or two, or oh, good, half a dozen. All right, you may have met some of these people. The first one, his name is Buster. You won't have met him because he. Doesn't live where you went anymore. Buster Kalazi was born in a very、uh, rural, isolated part of the country of Angola, and when he was basically in his twenties、uh, and、uh, late twenties, civil war in Angola had been going on for so many years, and it just was out of control, and he was forced to leave. So on his way leaving from Angola,、uh, he preached the gospel wherever he went. By the time he got to Zambia.、Uh, And had to learn English. He already could preach in four other languages:、uh, Lozi, Mbunda, Luchazi, and Luvali. By the time he got to Zambia, he started to learn English. He actually became my boss one day. And one day I said to him, "Well, how many churches have you planted?" And he said, "Over thirty. Over thirty." Okay, it's totally inspiring to me when you knew this man. Didn't own a car. In fact, he decided he wanted to go to Bible school in his fifties. He had thirteen children at the time. Those were the ones living at home. Thirteen children. The youngest one was a baby who couldn't walk yet, that young. And so he、uh, he applied to a local Bible school, which was out in the bush, and he asked if I wouldn't、um, use my vehicle to help get his things there. It's two hours away. You know, it'd be the moving van sort of. I said sure. I had a, a nice、uh, Nissan Patrol. Looks like a it's a four wheel drive vehicle. I had a, and I had a trailer. Behind it, that I could pull stuff on. So my dad, who was visiting at the time, he went with me. We went to Buster's house in this little shanty town, and my dad was think, said to me, "Well, how many trips will we have to make?" And I said, "Well, just just watch and see." He said, "Well, he's got 13 kids. He's going to have a lot of stuff." And、uh, so we got up there, and my trailer、um, 
we didn't even have to open the trailer. We just put on top of it his two iron bed frames. That's what he had: two bed frames, no mattresses, and then he had a number of cloth bundles, in which all of the extra clothing was, and he had a box with some pots in it and another box with a few books in it. That was the sum total of his possessions in 50 years of his life and 13 children.、Um, but to him, that was just how pilgrims lived. That was an inspiring life. My dad wept. My dad couldn't believe that we had to drive there two hours. We unloaded the stuff, and where his wife and and the other and the kids they had to come by bus. All right. In order to get the bus there, you end up your 20 minutes. I mean, 20 miles still from where you want to go, and they had to walk the rest of that way. So that's an inspiring life. He continues even to this day to be planting churches and working with local churches、uh, in Zambia. Another inspired life was a student that I taught in Cambridge. Her name is Karen Arthur. Karen Arthur came to、uh, Heritage College after high school. She was 19 years old, and she was very petite. Um, but she was always smiling. She was always happy. She became the director of the missions committee, and、uh, and she was an A student. And yet she had rheumatoid arthritis. So on a cold day, she would walk from the dorm into the school, and sometimes it would take her 25 minutes. It was less than 100 yards. But on a cold day, she was so、um, contracted. contracted. Yeah, she was. She could hardly move her joints. So she she basically moved like a penguin, and we used to tease her, of course, because you wouldn't want to be nice to somebody who's suffering. <laughs> she would walk very slow, but she'd get there and she smiled the whole way and talked to everybody else who was going in. Sometimes she was out in the hallway, coughing and coughing, violent coughing, and it'd bring me out of my office to make sure she was not coughing to death. But she'd say, "No, no, I'm fine, I'm fine." <laughs> she'd go back coughing, just trying to breathe, sitting in a classroom. So I didn't think much of it.、Um, But she came to me and she wanted to do a summer mission, so I arranged the whole thing. She was going to Guatemala to work with orphans. I got a phone call from her mom and dad. First, she said, "You know, my mom and dad would like to talk to you." Oh, great! They must have heard how good I am as a teacher, and they, you know, want to thank me. <laughs> I picked up the phone, and it was her father and mother online. And her father said, "Do you know that Karen has some health issues?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that." I said, "But she really functions very well." And he said, "Well, I just wanted you to know." That before she came to your school, she had never been on a city bus. I carried her until she was 18 years of age. Wherever we went, I had to carry her. She couldn't walk at all. All through high school, she couldn't walk until she she had her knees replaced and her hips replaced, and she was able now to walk. And Silence at the other end, and I wasn't saying very much. And they said, "You know, do you think she's going to be okay?" I said, "Well, I think, I think with Karen, she's going to be just fine." And then、uh, I hung up the phone and just about got sick to my stomach. But she went off to Guatemala, and when she got off the plane, the, the missionaries who were receiving her,、um, they said to themselves, "Oh, what has Scott done to us now?" Because <laughs> she came off in a wheelchair. She ended up being the best short-term、uh, missionary they'd ever had. She cleaned toilets. She changed diapers. She did whatever dirty thing, whatever difficult thing, and she did it with a smile. Well, now Karen,、uh, her goal in life, she told me, was to go and work with、um, uh, Buddhists, 
And so now she lives in Western China, and she's a missionary to the Uyghur people, a famously unreached people group who are Buddhists from Tibet. And she sent us her first prayer letter. She'd been there about three or four months, and her letter said that she was recently talking with one of her close friends, with uh, Uyghur friends, and all of a sudden the girl said to her, we know why you're here. You want us to become Christians, but we will never become Christians. We will never become Christians. And if my teacher tells me to, I will kill you. That's how she started out. She's still there. Um, she's, she's leading people to Jesus. And she has mastered the language. And she still does all that with rheumatoid arthritis. That's what an inspirational life looks like. That's looking the brutal facts of reality in the face and carrying on anyway. Uh, a man named John Chitumbo, who lives in Zambia, he was born in the rural Zambia on the, it would be on the western side of the Zambezi River between the Zambezi River and the Angolan border. 35 years of civil war in Angola. He was born, he was 14 years old, he was dying. He had been sick for a number of days, it was clear that he wasn't going to make it, so his mother carved an idol, had a man carve an idol for it. They prayed to this idol. Nothing at all happened. The next day, an uncle came through who said to them, what are you praying to that idol for? Pray to Jesus and he'll get well. A confident expectation, right? Totally confident that this would happen. The mother refused. The boy said, I'll try. Because he was, he was de- seriously on death's door. He said they prayed uh, to Jesus. He got his mom to pray. And he was walk, up and walking two days later. And from there, he became the elder in his church at the age of about 15. And then he was sent to school. He had exactly two years of formal schooling when they called him back because the elder he left in charge had died and there nobody left who could read and write in the church. So he had to come back and be the elder. Since that time, he has married. He has served God for 25 years. He can speak seven languages. He has planted churches in multiple places. He has worked as a chaplain with lepers. And his first wife passed away, and God granted him another wife. So he went from having um, seven kids of his own to 11 kids, and then he also uh, was able to take on a home for orphaned kids to bring it up to 20, you know, because it's a big prize if you get the most. (laughs) And now he's the pastor of a church in the Copper Belt, of people who are highly educated, and all he has is a little diploma from a Bible college in the bush, right? Confident expectation. One day we came back, him and I, we'd been out for the whole day preaching in a very rural place. We came back. I dropped him off at the hospital because his baby, who was six weeks old, was sick. And we had left her there at six in the morning with the mom, and I went home. He came to my house a few minutes later. The baby had died while he was away. And so we went together with his wife and with two other people, and we buried that baby in the graveyard. But he never missed a beat. He knows this is the brutal fact of reality. And he keeps on going day after day. I could tell you about a lot of other people. i just tell you one experience in my life that's very recent. Four years ago, uh, very suddenly and very devastatingly, uh, I had a major breakdown with depression. Clinical depression. If you don't know what that is, then you'll have to find out from somebody. Because sooner or later, 
you will know somebody who suffers from that problem. The condition that I was in was about as horrific and terrible as you can get. I started to cry one day. My wife and I were in the Calgary airport, and I was looking out the window. I started to cry, and I didn't know why. But at the same time, just wave after wave of horrible uh, feelings came over me. I felt I had failed. I felt I had let everyone down. I felt that uh, I was utterly worthless. I felt that there was no hope for me to do anything worthwhile. But even at the most horrible of that, as it got worse and worse every day, I remember saying to Karen one day, "But you know, no matter how much I feel this way, it's not true. None of it is true." The psychiatrist told me that his definition of depression is believing things that aren't true, whereas the definition of hope is to believe those things which are absolutely unconditionally true. And I knew three things: God was with me. God loved me, and that whatever this thing was that was destroying me would one day be used for His glory to help other people. That's hope. That's hope. I couldn't feel any of it, but I knew it 100% because it's in the Bible. So, let your life be full of hope. Invite people into your life so that they can be inspired. John Haggai says this: If you're thinking about your next steps, attempt something for God that is so impossible that unless He is in it, <laughs> it's doomed to failure. Attempt something that unless God is with you, it isn't going to happen. 116 years ago, some people got together and attempted to create a Bible training institute so the gospel could go around the world. And you're sitting here today because they had some hope. It was against all odds at that time. Nobody would go to a Bible institute because if you wanted to be a religious professional, you had to go to seminary, and there were major seminaries who could teach you. But they decided to create a Bible institute, and 116 years later, there's still people coming here to learn about God, to learn about God's world, and to make a difference in that place. So that's where you sit. You sit in an ocean of hope. You sit in a 116-year tradition of hope. You are wallowing in it every day, and if you lift your eyes from your difficulties, you will see it. It will come into you just by osmosis. You will learn at every chapel and in every class that it's worth trusting God in all things, no matter what, because it's absolutely unconditionally certain. Thank you. <clears throat>